It's okay. Well, we're continuing our study in the gospel according to Matthew, and we're in Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to begin our study in verse 13. Matthew 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at what is a very familiar text to many of us, many of us who have grown up in the church or even have been away from the church, distant from the church of Christ for, for many years or our whole lives, we're kind of at least familiar with this story. But Lord, I pray that, that the familiarity with this story would not cause us to close our ears to what we're to see here. Lord, show us, show us Jesus in this text for who he really is. Show us our heavenly king. And would you turn our hearts to praise him? In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're approaching this week, as you heard in, in the prayer, this week and next week, a couple of the, of the more familiar stories from the life of Jesus. Last week's wasn't as familiar, was it? That for some reason, they never made felt board cutouts of John the Baptist's, Baptist's head on the platter for, for the little kids to, to learn about in Sunday school. But the feeding of the 5,000, that's a felt board story that we know. And next week, we'll see Jesus walking on water. That's a felt board story that we know. And if you didn't grow up in the church, what I mean by felt board is pieces of felt that are put on a board made of felt and they're cut out to look like the characters in the stories. And so we tell the story with felt, with the felt board. We catch everybody up on that. Um, but for those of you who did grow up in the church, we've been using felt boards for a very, 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 very long time. And they're an effective way to tell a story, to teach kids this story. But here's what I remember the first time I heard this story and saw it on the felt board especially the, the story about the feeding the 5,000. My Sunday school teacher, and, and she was a, a, a precious lady who I think in many ways 
I know in many ways, greatly influenced my love of the word. And, and I will say this, she was only teaching what the quarterly told her to teach. So this isn't her fault. But what I learned when I was in elementary school was that this story is about sharing. You heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that this story is about sharing before. Uh, the, the real miracle was that the boy with the loaves and fishes, and we don't see him in Matthew's version of the story, but we see him in John's version of the story. The real miracle was that the boy who came to Jesus with his five loaves and two fish was the, was the spark that lit the sharing fire. And because of that little boy's gift, everyone else ended up sharing what they had brought with them. And that's what Jesus does. He's an inspiration. He teaches us how to share, how to be better people. Now, sharing is a moral lesson that we all need to learn. And, and that's a moral lesson we need to teach our kids. We have to teach about sharing. We're, we're, if we're training little ones to, to be kind and to share and to love one's neighbor, teaching them about an example from Scripture, someone who shared, that's a good thing. But we, listen carefully, we should never, ever, ever confuse the good and right commands of God with the gospel. Doing good is not the gospel. Sharing is not the gospel. Jesus is. Sharing is not the point of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. In fact, one of the ways we, we know without a doubt that that's not the point of this event it's because the little boy who provides those loaves and fishes is altogether ignored by Matthew in his account, and by Mark in his account, and by Luke in his account. They give this little fella zero credit because he's not the point. And even John, John tells us about this little boy who shared. But even when John does that, John at the, the end, when you're reading John chapter 6, read John 6 this week. When you're reading that, you'll see that the, the story, that the event itself, and then John tells us why that event occurred explicitly. No, no uncertain terms. He says that sig the significance of this event is that it shows us that Jesus is the bread of life, the manna from heaven given by the Father. The point of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is not so that we would learn to share. In fact, it's not about us at all. The story's about Jesus. And it's a very meaningful event in the life of Jesus. It's so meaningful, in fact, that this is the only miracle, short of the resurrection, the resurrection, of course, is in all four Gospels, but this is the only other miracle that is in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include this event in their proofs of why we should see Jesus as the Messiah. And that's because this event is absolutely central to helping us understand who Jesus is. This event points to Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament in a very clear way, a way that everyone who who was hearing these Gospels for the first time would have, would have understood. 
John, let me give you an example. John, in his account, in John chapter 6, he uses this event to show us that Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses from the Old Testament led his people out of Egypt, led God's people out of Egypt. And John formulates this story. He writes this story in such a way that we would see Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses had to rely on the Father to provide manna in the wilderness. Jesus is the manna. He is the bread from heaven given in the wilderness. He is the bread sent from heaven that gives life to the world. Those who the Father has called to believe in him would have eternal life. They'd be raised up in the last day because of this bread from heaven. So that's, that's how John wants us to understand it. Luke and Mark, they, they tell this event in a way that we hear echoes not just of Moses, but also Elisha, the prophet. It's a lesser known prophet, but he was a great prophet. Elisha's story is in 2 Kings chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but if you, if you are taking notes today and you just want to read 2 Kings chapter 4 this week to, to get a refresher on this one, or for the first time, uh, let me summarize it for you. Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A, is the protege of the great prophet Elijah, E-L-I-J-A-H. So he, he follows Elijah, the great prophet. Elisha, in 2 Kings 4, is teaching a group of young men, and it's getting late in the day, and they're all hungry, and they have nothing to eat. And one of the servants, one of Elisha's servants, goes foraging out in, the, in the, the fields around, and he comes back with a, a bunch of wild squash. And he doesn't know that it's poisonous, but it is. And he makes soup for all the people. And the people get upset, and they say, there's death in the pot, which is one of the great quotes from 2 Kings chapter 4. The people get upset. And, and Elisha, the greater prophet, following Elijah, he, he does this miracle where he, he makes the, the soup better. He puts flour in the soup, and, the, and he detoxes it. And then the soup, they find out, isn't enough for all these 100 men that he's teaching. And so somebody brings 20 barley loaves. And when you hear barley loaves, don't think loaf of bread. Think dinner roll, okay? So 20 dinner rolls to feed 100 men. So what does Elisha do? He commands the servant to set the loaves before the 100 men, and they all eat, and they have some left over. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Both Luke and Mark, when they tell us about this event, the feeding of the 5,000, they tell it in a way that shows us that Jesus is the greater Elisha. Mark even tells it in such a way that he includes this little detail. He says that Jesus took those 5,000 men and separated them into groups of 100. Interesting, isn't it? Just like the 100 that Elisha had before him. And rather than the 20 loaves for the 100 men, Jesus has to make do with five loaves for 5,000 men. So for you statisticians, Elisha's miracle power is a 5 to 1 ratio. And Jesus is, is a 1,000 to 1 ratio. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elisha. Our teacher, Matthew, though, draws out, he draws out those same comparisons. That's one of the, his specialties. Jesus is the new and greater Moses. He's the new and greater manna from heaven. He's the greater prophet. But, but Matthew also wants us to see that Jesus is a greater king than Herod. We, we saw Herod last week, if you were with us. 
Herod is, is this pseudo-king in the northern regions, and he had laid out this rich and powerful, or this, this feast for the rich and powerful last week. This week, though, we see that Jesus, he lays out a greater banquet for more people who aren't rich and powerful. He, he lays out the banquet for the poor and needy. So last week we examined Herod, that characteristically selfish, sinful, man-fearing king. This week, what we're going to do is simply look at the characteristics of the king who is not of this world, the heavenly king, good King Jesus. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open because we're just going to be going straight through the text. So if you've closed them, open them back up. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. And the first thing we see in verse 13, the first characteristic of the heavenly king is that the heavenly king leads. He's a leader. Look at the text with me. Verse 13 says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. Now, what did Jesus hear? Go back and look at verse 2 of chapter 14. Herod had been telling his servants that the miracle worker in Galilee was John the Baptist back from the dead. That's what Jesus heard. And so Jesus, hearing this, leaves the region of Galilee where Herod is ruler, and he goes to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Why would he do that? Well, if, if Herod thinks that John the Baptist is back from the dead, Herod's probably going to kill him if he knows. And so Jesus leaves Herod's jurisdiction. Matthew tells us Jesus goes to a desolate place up there so he can be by himself. But as Matthew tells us, solitude will not be an opportunity that's afforded to Jesus here. Matthew tells us that the people catching wind of where Jesus is going, they all leave their towns and villages and they head out to the uninhabited area that Jesus is headed for. Most likely they're along the seaside and they see Jesus' boat. And so as they see Jesus' boat, this is, this is a small lake. It's going north and they say, well, we, we know where he's probably going. He's going, going up there to that spot, wherever it is. So they all meet him there. They're literally going, they're following Jesus wherever he goes. Why? Because he's a leader. Skip ahead and look at verse 19. In verse 19, he commands the people to sit in the grass, and they do. But, but, but a leader commanding his people and the people obeying, it's not the only part of the story that I want you to see here. I mean, that's leadership, right? You command and the people obey willingly. That's leadership. But, but the word that our ESV Bibles, and if you're a guest with us, we use the English Standard Version. The ESV Bible translates that word there. It commands them to sit in the grass. They translate it as sit. It's usually translated in the New Testament as recline. In fact, some of your Bibles, if you look at the bottom, there's a footnote, and it says, literally, recline. At a fancy banquet in those days, people wouldn't sit at a table to eat. They would recline at the table. They would lay on their sides on pillows. I can't really do it from a standing position, but that's how they would eat at a fancy banquet. They'd recline on their sides. So let's put this in context, all right? The heavenly king is commanding his people to recline where? In the grass. Does this, does this bring to mind the shepherd king from Psalm 23? He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
the one who, also in Psalm 23, prepares a feast for me, prepares a table for me. It should remind you of that. People follow the heavenly king because he's a leader, and they obey the commands of the king because they trust him. Well, the second characteristic of the heavenly king, that's one. We're going quickly today. Second characteristic is that the heavenly king is compassionate. Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, so he was in a boat, he goes ashore. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and what does Matthew say? And he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, the word that we translate compassionate here is more than just a feeling of pity. It's a deep, heartfelt emotion that always leads to action. Back in chapter 9, right before Jesus sent out the disciples on their first mission, Matthew says Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then what does Jesus do? Then he sends out his disciples to the crowds to be their shepherds. He feels the need of the people, and he meets the need of the people. That's what compassion is. In our passage, we see that that many of the people are sick. Jesus comes ashore, he sees the people are sick, and so the king has compassion on them, and he heals them. He heals them. It's not just sound bites from the good king. It's not just rhetoric with the king from heaven. Unlike Herod, this king doesn't make foolish promises with his mouth that his wallet can't back up. Unlike our leaders, Jesus does more than post to social media when there's a need. He does more than march and say he identifies with the people in the do-nothing. He does more than pass legislation. The heavenly king sees the need, he feels the compassion for the people, and he meets their need like nobody else can. The third characteristic of a heavenly king is that he's responsible for his people. Look at verse 15. Evening comes. Because the crowd is great, Jesus is still healing people. The disciples are tired. They're ready for a break, and so they suggest that Jesus send the people away for dinner and to go home and get some rest and come back another day because they're exhausted. But that is not an option for the compassionate king, is it? What does he say? He says, no, you feed them. Now, if you'll remember back to chapter 9, when Jesus first commissioned these disciples, his commissioning wasn't just a go, it was a sending with power. The disciples were given power to do the things that Jesus was doing. He told them they would be able to raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons. But presumably, the apostles have the ability through the Spirit to also provide food, but they don't know it yet. And we're going to talk a little bit more about these abilities that they have from King Jesus. But when Jesus tells them to provide food for the people, He's not telling them to do something that they can't do. It's just that they don't know yet that they can. They don't don't understand yet fully who Jesus is, and they don't understand fully what it means to be his ambassadors, his chosen men. Well, regardless, Jesus quickly realizes the disciples aren't going to get it, and there's no time to try to teach them. They're clueless. They're not going to feed the people, and so the heavenly king takes responsibility 
for the situation. In verse 17, Jesus assesses the situation. What do we have? Five loaves, two fish. Okay, we can work with that. How many people are there? 5,000 men. Okay, we can work with that. In verse 19, he orders the crowds to sit in the grass, and then he feeds them. The true king takes responsibility for his people. He doesn't blame the disciples and lecture them for their lack of understanding and, and show how their faith, faithlessness here, their lack of faith, is what's leading to the, the hunger of all these people. He doesn't, he doesn't blame the people for leaving their homes and their villages without a picnic basket. He doesn't blame the people for being hungry. And he doesn't lecture them about how if only they would pray more, they wouldn't be so hungry. He takes responsibility for the situation. He feeds his people. In verse 20, we see our next characteristic, number four. The heavenly king provides for his people. A parallel passage to this, in the way that Matthew's weaving for us this great story of Jesus' life, is that story at the beginning of Matthew, of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. If you remember, back in Matthew 4, right after the baptism of Jesus, the Messiah is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, be tempted by Satan, and he's out there in that desolate place for 40 days. And after Jesus is absolutely starving, the tempter comes to him. He sees Jesus in his weakness. What does he say? He says, make for yourselves what? Bread. Make bread, Jesus. If you're the son of God, make bread from these stones. But in that wilderness temptation, when Jesus was alone, Jesus refused to make food for himself. Instead, he reminded the tempter that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Well, here, the king's people, the people that he's come to save, are in need. It's only been one day, not 40 days. It's been one day, but they're hungry, and there's nowhere near enough food. And the heavenly king does for the people exactly what he had been tempted to do for himself. To miraculously provide food from what's available. But what Jesus will not do for himself, he does for the people. Man does not live on bread alone, but by the word of God. For the word of God, who is also the bread from God, gives to his people. The heavenly king selflessly provides for his people. And he doesn't just give them a wee bit. He doesn't give them just enough. The heavenly king satisfies his people. That's our next characteristic. Look at verse 20. They all ate, all the people ate, and what happens? They were all satisfied. They were all satisfied. That's, that's not insignificant. Of people who were afflicted were healed, and then they eat, and they are satisfied. It's not insignificant. That's prophecy fulfillment. Turn back with me to Psalm 22. Psalm, we 
you have your Bibles, it's kind of in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 22 is in the first quarter of the Psalms. And I wouldn't normally ask you to turn so far back in your Bibles, but this one is pretty special. In Psalm 22, the anointed one, King David, is seeking the Lord in his time of trouble. He's praying, the beginning of that psalm, about how his enemies are, are overwhelming him, and it feels like the Lord has forsaken him. And Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, he'll quote that psalm when he's on the cross. My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? And then if you keep going through that first half of Psalm 22, you see all this fulfillment. All the things that, that David prophesies about in Psalm 22 happen to Jesus in the passion of Christ in the week that he's killed. But we're not at that point of Jesus' death yet in Matthew's gospel. We're discovering his kingship right now, aren't we? So I want you to look not at the first half of Psalm 22, but the second half, and look at verse 26. David says, the afflicted shall eat. And then what? And they'll be satisfied. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. So in our text this morning, not only did the afflicted eat, they were healed from their affliction first in verse 14 of of our text, and then they ate, and then they're satisfied in verse 29 or 20 of our text. And there's an abundance of food left over. They eat till their bellies were full, which is an experience that people often would not have had in those days. So now skip down to verse 28 of Psalm 22. What is the conclusion? Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So, so who feeds the afflicted? The Lord does. Yahweh does. The one true God does. And to whom does kingship belong? Yahweh. The Lord, the one true God. He rules over the nations. The one who feeds his people is the king of the nations. The one who satisfies is the king of the nations. What is Matthew showing us then? When the, when the people who are afflicted are healed by Jesus and then they eat and are satisfied by Jesus, what is Matthew showing us? That Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is king. Well, the last thing I want to show you, the last characteristic, number six, is that the true heavenly king unites. This one's not as obvious from our text alone. You have to read the whole book of Matthew to see it. And I wouldn't normally do this, but given the events of this last week, I think it's crucial that we understand that King Jesus is the one who unites. So go back to Matthew 14. If you're in Psalm, back to Matthew. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Back to Matthew 14. I want you to look at the language that Matthew uses when Jesus feeds the people. Matthew chapter 14, verse 19. Look at the way that Matthew writes this. He says, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. You're thinking, what is so unifying about that? Well, 
the 5,000 men here are all Jewish men. And we know that based on the geography and based on the way that, that Matthew is writing this for us. When they're not Jews, he'll tell us these weren't Jews. It's also significant that how many baskets were collected at the end of this great feast? Twelve, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In chapter 15, so we'll get there in a few weeks, Jesus is going to perform this same miracle. But this time, it's not going to be Jews who he feeds. It's going to be Gentiles who he feeds. Look at Matthew 15, verse 36, and read what Matthew says. Having given thanks, he broke them, the loaves, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So here's the pattern. Jesus gives thanks. He breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples. All right? Same thing as we saw in chapter 14. And we'll see this again in Matthew 26. In chapter 26, we see the same refrain. The disciples and Jesus are in an upper room with Jesus before the crucifixion. And as they're eating their last meal, Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 26, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Same exact wording. Jesus took bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to the disciples. That's not an accident. The Jews, Matthew 14, are given a banquet by the heavenly king. The Gentiles, in Matthew 15, are given the same banquet by the heavenly king. And then the king, eating with his ambassadors in his last meal, he institutes a future banquet where all who are called, Jews and Gentiles, will join together and eat in the presence of the king while they wait for the arrival of the forever kingdom. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Friends, every time we partake in the Lord's Supper together, or the communion together, we're remembering that our heavenly king died to reconcile us to God as one people, his body. And when we eat of that meal, when we break bread together, we're looking forward to that great wedding banquet when we, the church, the bride of Christ, will together feast with our king, the groom. That, that first banquet on the grass, it's a foreshadowing to when the heavenly king unites every nation, every tribe, every race, every tongue into one people in his one kingdom, the only kingdom that will last. That's how we can say with confidence that the heavenly king unites. There is no king like this king. There, there's no king like King Jesus. If you're looking to a worldly king or a worldly leader to have the compassion of Jesus, you will never ever find him. No one knows your needs like Jesus does. No one can provide for you your needs the way that Jesus can. He sees your need for healing, and he heals you. He heals your deepest sickness, your sin, and he takes it away. He washes you. He sanctifies you so that he could present you to himself 
in splendor for that great wedding banquet. If you're looking for a worldly king who will take responsibility, you will not find him. Jesus ultimately did what no other king could ever do. We have worldly leaders who will say that they're taking responsibility. But when it comes down to it, when, when difficulty comes, they, they pass on the responsibility to someone else. Well, that, this wouldn't have happened if it weren't for my predecessor. I, every president ever has said that, except for George Washington. It was, it was the previous generation's fault. So maybe it's not the previous president or governor or whoever. Maybe it was a whole entire generation. That's, that's the reason why we have this problem. Or maybe it's the fault of that other nation. If it weren't for that other nation, we wouldn't have this problem. No leader, no worldly king can ever take responsibility the way that Jesus can. Because Jesus takes responsibility for your sin and the sin of generations past and the sins of people from every nation. Only 